I'm Preston Sprinkle, and I choose truth over tribe. Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? As a Christian, how do you see your political identity? I ask that because for much of recent American history, Christians have had a lot of power. Most people in office have been Christians, and even Christian pastors and academics have had the ability to influence the political process and our collective ethics in a pretty profound way. As a result, I think a lot of Christians see themselves as power brokers, or at least as the kind of person who should be adjacent to power and shaping public discourse. But as our society changes, and as there are fewer Christians today in America than there have ever been in its history, a lot of Christians feel as though that power is falling through their fingers. And perhaps that's why you're beginning to hear more people talk about Christians living as exiles in Babylon. And of course, America is Babylon. You can find thinkers from just about every denomination, every tradition using this kind of language. But what does that mean? How does that play out? I'm excited because today we're going to be talking to Preston Sprinkle. He has a PhD from Aberdeen in the New Testament. He used to be a professor, but you probably didn't have him in class. If you know him, it's probably because you've read some of his amazing books or you listen to his fantastic podcast, Theology in the Raw. He's got a book coming out later this year on exactly this topic, how exile can be a political identity for Christians in our current cultural context. But again, when we start using that language, we have to ask the question, how does it land on the ground? Especially when there are some really live debates, even amongst those who want to use the language of exile about how we live that out. What does it mean to be exiles? And so Preston and I, we really got into it. He let me ask him some hard, kind of pressing questions on this topic. And I think some of his answers and the conclusions that we come to are going to be really helpful for you as you think about what it means to live as an exile in Babylon. Preston, it's great having you on the show today. Yeah, it's good to be live in the studio. I know, this is fun. This is super fun. (laughs) I really wanted to emulate you in this podcast by not having any notes and not... (laughs) I mean, I'm shocked. You'll get on with people and be like, you know, I haven't gotten to read all the way through your book. You know, you're just asking... How do you do that? Like, it's like spitfire (laughs) from your hip and you ask these awesome questions and I'm totally jealous because I have to spend hours preparing (laughs) to interview someone. I usually don't prepare anything. Usually I have people on that I know something about. I would say maybe a quarter of the time I have read the book or part of the book. I do two a week. There's no way. And I like to interview a diverse range of people. So there's no way I can just sit there and read all those books. So yeah, for me, the podcast sometimes is, you know, I want to get to know what your book's all about without, you know, from you without reading the book. So Oh, so it's kind of like your Cliff Notes version. Kind of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're, yeah. <laughs> you're totally hacking the system. You're getting them to tell you all their best ideas, and then you can skip the book process. I, I still yeah. don't know how you do that. Well, I just, I've said this often, that like my podcast is like having a conversation with my neighbor. Like we go outside, we get the mail, we're like, hey, what's going on? And we just start having a conversation, except the record button happens to be playing, you know? So like it's not an interview, it's curious conversations with thoughtful people as if they, you know, stumbled in my living room and just started talking. I really almost <laughs> came into this without notes. I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to pull a press and I'm going to do an interview without any notes. But I I got too scared. Okay. I, I, yeah, you I got, got two pages. I'm like reading through this. Like, what are we Oh, no, no, no. Two this pages. This is a job interview? This is, you can ask our executive producer. 
two pages is short. I mean, we, we I will go up to six, seven. He's holding up seven right now. Seven pages sometimes <laughs> of notes, and I never get through them. I just I want to have every little thing. Yeah. So if the conversation goes one way, I can draw something out. It comes out very natural <laughs> okay, in your good. podcast. Yeah, it doesn't. I, in fact, I was shocked that you actually have notes. I didn't. It doesn't feel like you have notes. Oh well, yeah. I'll take that as a compliment. I managed to trick someone. <laughs> I hadn't prepared. I do always prepare. No, we're actually both right now working on a book on exile, and you're ahead of me in this process, mm-hmm. which I'm excited about because I really want to steal a lot of your ideas <laughs> and bring them into yeah. our book. But just for our listeners, I want to ask, you have named a title for the book yet? The working title is Exile with a subtitle, A Christian Political Identity. Okay. That's, yeah, we'll see what the publishers do with it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if they let that one live. Now, what led you into the project? I mean, in the past, you've done a lot of work, especially in sex, sexuality, LGBTQ issues. And so I think for a lot of people, this might feel like a bit of a sidestep. This idea has been lingering behind the scenes in all of my thinking for, I would say, over 10 years. It probably started when I wrote a book called Fight, A Christian Case for Nonviolence, which is more specifically on the question of what does the Bible say about followers of Jesus using violence. And I'm just going to do a quick plug. That's my favorite book you've written. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. In fact, we did a five-part series on Truth Over Tribe where Keith and I debated nonviolence versus violence. Keith is in favor of violence, I like to say. (laughs) It was in large part, not just your work, but your work loomed largely in the background of that conversation. It's a fantastic book. So that makes sense to me because you are having to think a little bit about yourself as an exile if you're going to take the perspective of nonviolence resistance being the norm for Christians. So in that book, there was this sub-theme that kind of lingered behind everything I was saying that every now and then popped up here and there in the book, and it was more of this broader view of what is our relationship as believers to the various nations and governments we're living under. Mm. And so that really was the substructure of, I think, the entire argument, but it wasn't explicit. I mean, well, some places it was, but I mean, it wasn't like fully worked out on a theological, biblical level. So I just kind of set that on the back burner when the book came out, but it's kind of continued to grow and shape everything I say. And I often, you know, will use the phrase, hey, we're in exile in Babylon. Or, you know, I think on the eve of the last election, I said, hey, tomorrow Babylon's going to elect a new leader. (laughs) <laughs> you know, or... <laughs> you get any backlash for that one? Oh, all the time, yeah. I mean, I get a lot of people that like it, people that question, like, what do you mean, you know? And But I think people kind of intuitively kind of like, oh, that's a different perspective. Mm. And yet you can't argue with the biblical roots of that. Or like, how did the exiles feel when Persia took over Babylon? You know, Cyrus versus Nebuchadnezzar or whatever. It's like, oh, one might have been kind of better than the other, but they're still Babylonian and Persian leaders. They're still not on our side, you know, and just having that perspective of being just having our identity theologically detached from the powers to be is kind of the posture I'm trying to cultivate. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's really helpful. I found the idea and language of exile increasingly to be, well, the language that I'm using on this podcast and other places. But what I find really interesting is you can find Christians talking about themselves like exiles in the 20th century, but it's not a normal, at least in America, it's not a normal way for Christians to speak about their identity as Americans. So maybe just historically, and I realize you're not a historian, so maybe you'll hesitate to answer this <laughs> question. But why historically? I mean, outside of maybe Mennonite, Anabaptist-type traditions, have Christians in America not mm-hmm. really seen themselves as exiles in Babylon? I would love to lean on you for this. From the little I've dabbled, and anecdotally, I think I can speak pretty freely, but from the little I've dabbled, I mean, there has been a history of American leaders viewing America as the new Israel, And America as a geographical location is like the promised land, which makes Native Americans the Canaanites. Mm. And you have this language really explicitly in some of the early fathers. And of course, you have, you know, the religious people for religious reasons coming to America for religious freedom. So it has been biblical slash religious themes interwoven strongly into the establishment of America so that when Christians think today, I think there is this kind of assumption that America is closer to Israel than Babylon. Mm. And that's kind of produced this desire for, you know, cultural reform. And when America drifts from our supposed Christian values, Christians often get kind of shocked or whatever. But no exile in literal Babylon, you know, 2,500 years ago would have been like, that's Babylon, we're in exile. Like, yes, we seek the good of the city, but it's always from a perspective of this is not our national identity. We are not Babylonian. We are Israelites, you know. And yet Christians today, 
I think their Americanism is just so interwoven into their theological identity. I find that profoundly problematic. We can get into this more later, but I'm not saying like, hate your country or think it's evil or the worst thing ever. Like we can, again, seek the good of the city. We submit to governing authorities, but we do so from a posture of a very different theological and political identity. Yeah. Uh, So how do you respond to people? Because I know people have to push back and say, well, I love my country and I think there's nothing wrong with being patriotic. And it seems to me that what you're saying is that I need to view my country like, well, Babylon. (laughs) I need to view my leader as, well, Nebuchadnezzar. And these aren't good nations. These are evil empires in the Bible and they're not viewed very positively. Now we can press and nuance that, but I mean, what is your response? My response is let's just go deep into the text of scripture. There's so much Bible that addresses what it's like living in the shadow of the empire. Like that's from all the literature, from the exile, the historic exile, all the way into the first century. So for those who may not know, sure what you're even talking about, you know, this is maybe two thirds of the Bible (laughs) is written from the perspective of the people of God living in the midst of and in submission to some worldly empire and whole books like the book of Daniel, book of Revelation, and, you know, a lot of the prophetic literature in the Old Testament is directly addressing this theme of living in the shadow of the empire. So in the scriptures, you have both a posture of submission, meaning don't revolt, (laughs) In the book of Jeremiah, it deals with these themes a lot. And you had kind of two different perspectives throughout Jeremiah. One was this kind of uprising saying, we need to resist Nebuchadnezzar. We need to revolt. We need to fight back, you know. And then you have kind of the nonviolent resistance of Jeremiah. (laughs) People often don't think of it this way, but it's pretty much right there. And he's like, no, don't resist Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to come. This isn't God's plan. He's going to take us away. Do not revolt. And when he's in exile, Jeremiah writes a letter to the exiles in Jeremiah 29 and says, you know, seek the good of the city, build houses, get married. Like, you're in it for the long haul, 70 years to be exact. Like, don't think this is going to end anytime soon. Get used to your situation. But by saying seek the good of the city, he is not saying become Babylonian or praise everything Babylon's doing. This is still Babylon, okay? And in the New Testament, we have Paul, you know, in Romans 13 and Peter in 1 Peter 2, talking about submitting to governing authorities. But again, the idea is don't revolt against the government, submit. But submission doesn't mean be a patriotic, wave the Roman flag, and you know, be on board with everything Rome's doing. Because Rome is still Babylon. It's a new Babylon. That's what they referred to, early Christians referred to Rome, the Roman Empire, as the new Babylon. Like, it still is an earthly empire that might do some good. Like, you know, the Roman Empire, you know, they're famous for building this massive road system. And they policed the roads really well. So they kept thieves at bay because that was a big problem in travel in the ancient world. It was so dangerous just to travel. And so I can look at that and say, that's awesome. That's like early globalization. It caused people to be able to travel and move around and stuff. And Rome made adultery illegal. That's pretty good virtue, you know? Like, So not every single thing they did is evil, but at the end of the day, it is still Babylon. It is still competing with the reign of God on earth. And that is where Christians absolutely need to separate our identity. We are not part of that kingdom. Our allegiance is not to that kingdom, even while we're being submissive. We're being submissive because our allegiance is to a different reign on earth under the lordship of King Jesus. Yeah, I think one of the pushbacks I get from people frequently when I say similar things is— you are describing a very particular historical context, mm-hmm. and you're reading it as an allegory for Christian experience mm. throughout the rest of life, right? So, so sure, Rome is Babylon. Sure, Babylon was Babylon. Sure, the Persians, they were Babylon. Yeah, you can say they're all Babylon because you might have some Bible verses to make the point, but that doesn't mean that every yeah. empire, every nation that follows them is Babylon. True. I try to be as careful of a biblical interpreter as I can. My main priority is I want to interpret the text well. I don't want to force the text to say something it's not trying to say. So just so people know, I don't do it perfectly, but I'm very sensitive to making sure I'm not making wrong conclusions or trying to map biblical themes on the present day in ways that don't fit. So of course, the United States of America is not exactly like the Roman Empire, okay? There's similarities and there's differences, okay? Some of the differences, you know, America is a democracy. I mean, I know there's some complications there, you know, I mean, (laughs) I think money and power do play a role in who's at the helm at the top of the, (laughs) a lot more than people might realize, you know, it's a democracy. What else? There's a certain level of freedom that maybe people, but even that though, like America, freedom of religion, you know, the Roman empire was huge on freedom of religion. They allowed all kinds of, they just didn't allow like 
a religion that had a reputation of being kind of revolutionary, like trying to overthrow the government. We're not going to allow that. There was some suspicion around Jesus and the Jesus movement. That's why he got crucified, because they were like, ah, it seems like there could be a revolt, you know, happening here. But Rome was, you know, freedom of religion. I think the poverty wealth gap was way more severe in the first century. That was true of everywhere in the world. I mean, there was no real middle class. There was a tiny percentage of people that had almost all the wealth and everybody else was at or below the poverty line. America has a pretty large middle class. So there's definitely differences. There's also some similarities. I don't know if you've been to the Capitol in Washington, D.C. Yeah, yeah. I and, think I know where you're going, but <laughs> let's talk okay, about Okay, in the Capitol, this could just be, oh, well, no, it's not that significant. But if you look up into the, is it called the tundra or something? Yeah, the rotunda. Rotundra. What is it? Oh, my God. Rotunda. Rotunda, I think. I don't know. <laughs> Google it. You look up and you have this beautiful picture of what's called the apotheosis of George Washington. Apotheosis is where a earthly ruler is sort of deified upon his death. And the painting is clearly drawing on this extremely well-known common theme in the first century where Roman Caesars were deified upon their death. Now, we're not literally worshiping Washington, you know, but it's interesting how etched into the fabric of the American story are some themes that are deliberately drawn from the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was known for having a massive, invincible military power. That's how they ruled their kingdom. Nobody's going to question that the American military complex is the most powerful military machine since the Roman Empire. And we see that as this is how we establish peace in the world. <laughs> well, first century, the Pax Romana was the main kind of theme in the Roman Empire that, yeah, we need to keep at bay all these bad people out there. We yeah. have terrorists in the north. We have our barbarians over here. And we need to, you know, hold our borders. You know, there's so many similar themes. That, again, it's 2,000 years apart, so there's going to be differences. But I think there's some themes here that aren't too different. So while there are similarities and differences, I think there are some deep level theological themes that do overlap quite significantly so that Christians living in whatever nation today can find a biblical paradigm in the scriptures to help them navigate their own political situation today is what I would encourage Christians to do. There's a wealth of biblical material to help followers of God navigate what it is like living under the authority of a secular nation that they're living in. And I think the Bible's applicable in helping us navigate those waters. I mean, it's something that I've been personally wrestling with because, I mean, you just did it. Okay, let's compare America and Rome and let's do a little compare and contrast. And if there's enough comparisons, then yeah, we can declare that America is in fact a type of Babylon. And that's one way of making the argument. But the other way is saying, no, the Bible is giving us kind of the deep theological substructure for how Christians live in a political world, because we all live in a political world. We have to organize our lives together. And then the question becomes, is that paradigm of being exiles in Babylon, is it a paradigm or is it the paradigm. This is the normative way that Christians orient themselves to the nations, the secular nations under which they find themselves ruled. I mean, what would you say to that? It's a great question. I don't know if there's a simple answer. I do. This is because I've been really marinated in these themes for a long time. So yeah, I would say yes. I do think the exile paradigm, that that is normative for how Christians should view themselves. Because just the whole idea of living in and being part of God's kingdom, which we now know from the work of various scholars, that that is kind of the central theme of Jesus's ministry, is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. It was the main content of all of his preaching. That was kind of a debate a long time ago. Nowadays, like, you know, if you're going to say, what is the theme of Jesus's ministry? Is him establishing the kingdom of God on earth? There's questions about, you know, was it partially established or does it full manifestation wait in the future? But whatever, we can have those discussions. But the kingdom of God is primary content of Jesus's preaching. Well, the Greek word for kingdom, basileia, I mean, that just means kind of empire. Like that is a political term. When he says, I am the king and I'm establishing a kingdom, Rome was like, what? <laughs> we were at Basileia too, so let's yeah. have that conversation. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, wait, so are you going to cause a revolt? I mean, this is why it's interesting that Christianity, whatever you think about violence, whatever, Christianity was a very nonviolent movement in the first century. That's just a historical observation fact, okay? And you could say, well, we don't need to be like that today, whatever. That's a whole other conversation. But 
There's no reason why Christianity would be suspected of sedition, overthrowing the government or whatever, were it not for these deep, profound (laughs) political themes. Like every time they said Jesus is Lord, well, the word Lord was widely used of the Roman Caesars. It would be like saying Jesus is president and he's establishing a government. Like, (laughs) <laughs> it's going to get you into some trouble. Oh, yeah. So in Acts 17, Paul and I think Silas, they go into Thessalonica and they preach the gospel and it causes like an uproar. And people say literally in Acts 17, these people who have turned the world upside down have come here too, preaching another king, Jesus, which is against the decrees of Caesar. Like they heard the gospel and the very language of Christianity was language of profound political subversion. It wasn't, hey, you know, get saved and follow Jesus and then keep your religious spiritual life over here and then also be very patriotic over here. Like the Christian political identity said something about their political posture toward Rome in the first century. So there was a profound political subversion, submission, but also subversion. We can maybe tease out that tension in the very gospel message of the kingdom in the first century. And that's so pervasive. You would have to almost rewrite the New Testament to say, is that really applicable today? I'm like, well, you lose a good chunk of the New Testament if you try to say like, well, that was for then, but not now. I'll throw this out there just to stir the pot. You know who else views America as more like Babylon than not? Virtually everybody living outside of America. (laughs) If you read theologians living in like Latin America, Africa, To some extent in Asia, they have their own Babylon, you know, issues over there. But yeah, you know, we think we are establishing peace in the world, just like Rome did. And everybody else outside is like, well, your peace, your wealth, your military might isn't always producing good in all these other countries that you think it is, you know. So I think as we ask questions about our political identity, living in America, we shouldn't be so ethnocentric to just think about my existence in America. We do need to pay attention to kind of the global perspective on America as well. We'll get right back to my interview with Preston. But before we do, I want to tell you about a special opportunity. Every year, Theology in the Raw, that's Preston's podcast, they pull off a conference called Exiles in Babylon. I love that name because, well, you've been listening to this interview and you already know. But what I love about his conference is that they not only get excellent speakers, they cover topics that you don't hear discussed in many conferences today. So, for example, this year at the conference, they're going to be talking about disability in the church, multi-ethnic perspectives on American Christianity. And there's going to be a debate even on the problem of evil. So I'm just telling you, I'm really looking forward to this. I'm going to be there. I'll be speaking, doing a live podcast with Preston at the conference. And because we're doing that, him and his team wanted to give you, our listeners, a special chance to sign up for the conference. The conference is at the end of this month from March 23rd through the 25th. Now, here's the deal. You can come in person, but maybe it's a little too late for that. And if it is, I want to encourage you to sign up for this conference, the digital version. And if you type in the code truth. 20, that's one word, all lowercase, truth two zero, you'll get 20% off your digital conference registration fee. I think that you're going to love this. The speaker lineup this year is absolutely fantastic. They've got Dr. Jerry Brashears, Eugene Cho, Justin Gibbony, who we've had on the show, Elise Fitzpatrick. So many amazing names are on this list. I'm kind of embarrassed that I'll even be talking there because these people are such stellar thinkers in their areas of expertise. So I want to encourage you, go online and sign up for the digital conference. Use that code truth two zero one word, and I'll see you there digitally. If I were to put on my Bible hat, there are a lot of debates around this. So I want to ask a few questions around that. The first one is there are some scholars who would say, yes, Israel went into exile. And then after the decree of Cyrus, the exile effectively came slowly over time as people moved back. It effectively came to its conclusion because the people went back to the land of Israel. And sure, they weren't ruling themselves, but they were given lots of freedom to worship freely as they wanted, which, you know, is a little bit of a whitewashing of what happened. They'd say, look, the exile at that point is effectively over. And there's other thinkers, N.T. Wright being one of them, who said, no, you know what? Exile is a theme that continues 
continues throughout that period of history in Israel and continues into the New Testament. And so there's a debate over this. So just weigh in on that. I mean, why do you say the exile didn't end once the people came back to the land? I mean, isn't it over? You're back. You're done. That's a great question, and that's an important one to wrestle with. So when we think about exile, I like to think about it through three lenses, historical lens, a theological lens, and a political lens, okay? So historically, you know, between 606 and 586 BC, you had the literal, physical, historical exile. The Babylonians came over in two or three different waves and sacked Israel and killed a lot of people and then took a lot of people into exile. And in 536, Persia takes over Babylon. They have this decree to like send people back to their lands, you know, and that was really kind of a political move. Like, it's not that they were like pro-Israel or like, I can't believe you guys exiled these people. They were like, we could probably do a better job ruling the world if we keep people happy. (laughs) You want some money for the temple here? We'll fund your temple, you know, we'll keep that God happy on that part. You know, like it's a very polytheistic, pagan, self-driven motivation to be good to the exiles. So they send the exiles back home but they're still taxing their socks off. They're still in charge. And so when Israel returns, they rebuild the temple, which is finished in 516. And all right, we're back. But they look around and like, the presence of God hasn't returned to the temple. You know, lights are on, but nobody's home. We're still under this foreign Gentile ruler. Where's the Davidic Messiah that we've been promised? You know, (laughs) no Davidic king. We have people like all these Israelites are kind of like marrying pagan people. And like, we're kind of like losing our way, like just ethically as, as Israelites, you know? So you began to see in the literature, in the post-exilic literature, books written after they return, this theme of, okay, even though we're back in the land, we're kind of not really back in the land. So that brings us to kind of more of a theological lens where, yes, we went through exile, we suffered the punishment of, we lived against God's covenant order, and that's why we were sent in exile. We're back in the land, but we're still kind of just living in exile. In fact, is it Nehemiah, Ezra Nehemiah in Nehemiah? I think it's Nehemiah 9. Nehemiah 9, yeah. I think it's actually Ezra praying in Nehemiah 9, I believe. Or maybe it's the whole corporate body saying, you know, we are still slaves in the land, they say. Like, we're in the land, but we're not really enjoying the covenant promises of being in the land. So you have this theme of kind of theologically still being in exile. And then politically, because they are living under the authority of Gentile rulers, they still view themselves as being in exile politically because they don't have their own kingdom and king set up. And so in the first century, when the king does return, when Jesus, the Davidic Messiah, does come to establish a kingdom, there is a sense in which they now belong to a kingdom, but they are still under the earthly authorities. And that's where their political identity is maintained as still being in exile until Christ's kingdom kind of overtakes all of creation. So historically, the exile did end in 536, but I think politically and theologically, there's still some aspects of exile that continue. Let me keep pushing on you. Yeah. If exile is a core part of our identity as Christians, our political identity as Christians, which I think anyone would agree, wherever you live, politics matter. Again, politics is just how we organize our life together. We're all political creatures. And so this is a key part of our identity. If it is so central Why didn't Jesus talk about exile? Oh, (laughs) yeah, that's a good question. I'm not saying that the specific language of exile was kind of like everywhere in the preaching of the early church. Well, you do have it like, I mean, in 1 Peter, you do have it. Even the book of Revelation, the language isn't there, but the themes are very strong in Revelation. And I would say the theme of exile kind of underlies so much of the very political language that was used to describe Jesus and the kingdom coming. So, yeah, this is something I don't want to push the language too far, but I do want to see how the theological substructure of the message of the New Testament is still born out of this exilic identity. Yeah, so your point being, hey, it's one of those funny things. Sometimes the most obvious things are the things that we never end up saying. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. You know, I mean, it's true of all of life. I don't walk around people who know me announcing the fact that I'm a husband and a father and all these things that are incredibly central to who I am because the people who know me know all those things. They're simply accepted as a given fact in my reality. Now, this is a dangerous way to make an argument when you want to say, hey, you never said this explicitly, but you don't have to because it's implicit. What I find fascinating about the New Testament, I remember I was leading a study through the book of Isaiah, and you know, you get to Isaiah 40 to 55, whatever you think about who wrote Isaiah 40 to 55, set it aside. It's 
clearly aimed at the exiles in Babylon. No one questions that. That is the target audience of this passage. And it opens up with this prophetic figure, and he's being called to speak comfort to the people and to make crooked ways straight. And then, obviously, I've got all these hyperlinks going off in my head to Mark 1, (laughs) and one of the earliest Gospels, where John the Baptist is introduced to us as exactly that figure, the one who is giving comfort but crying, you know, make straight the crooked paths. And if you know how Isaiah works, this is the point. Whoever comes to announce that, that's the point when the exile ends because that's the one who's making the straight path for Israel to leave Babylon and come back to Jerusalem. And so when the New Testament opens up, I mean, the book of Matthew, like Jesus' yeah. genealogy, you have the exile inside of the genealogy. Like, yeah. this is part of his When the book opens up and you meet these figures who are clearly announcing this new Exodus moment where the people are returning from Babylon and it never uses the language of exile, to me, it almost implies this is so significant and it's so patently obvious to everybody who read the New Testament that it doesn't need to be said. Right, yeah. I mean, arguably, maybe that's why Peter had to say it to the Romans living in, you know, modern-day Turkey. Yeah, <laughs> is, yeah. You guys might not realize how the story works, so let me just be really clear. Right. You Roman people, you are exiles, and maybe that's not how you think about yourself, but I'm going to say that part out loud because it might not be. Yeah. So I'm curious. I mean, is that part of the logic for you? Yeah. I mean, you think of the word Christian is what you maybe a couple times in the New yeah. Testament, but the idea of being a Christian, a Christ follower, is kind of everywhere. So you can have an idea expressed without a specific term being used if the idea is pervasive enough that it doesn't need the specific term. And this is something that, you know, I don't expect hardly anybody to know. But yeah, in a lot of Jewish literature written before and during the New Testament, you have pervasive themes of being a political exile or being a follower of Yahweh, being a follower of God, while living under the authority of an earthly empire. So that's really the only idea. If somebody says, I don't think we should ever refer to ourselves as exiles, I'm like, okay, that's fine. But the concept of living in another authority, namely the kingdom of God, while other earthly rulers are also trying to be their own kingdom, and that those compete with each other and clash, and our identity and allegiance to Christ's kingdom will have massive implications to how we view our identity in the earthly kingdom, so I didn't even use the word exile there. So whatever you want to call that, that's pervasive. <laughs> when I say that we are exiles in Babylon, it's that. Yes. What, what you just said yes, a moment exactly. ago. Yes. I think that's really helpful because I get into these debates or conversations yeah. with people who hear me use the language of exile. I mean, I've had this happen. People are like, show me the Bible, you know, like, give me the verse. Like, where is it from? And, <laughs> yeah. you know, thankfully I, I do have, you know, First Peter 1 and 5. I've yeah. got a few places to go. But it's hard to talk about because you have to do what you just did, which is there's this substructure, there's this concept. And so we're just using the word exile as a way of yeah. describing that experience. And I suppose you could use other words, you know, like I kind of think about how, you know, in the book of Hebrews, you know, Abraham's described as a, depending on your translation, a sojourner, yeah. an immigrant, a foreigner. Do you think that yeah. idea of Israel as immigrant, foreigner, sojourner, does that map into this? Very reality? similar. Oh yeah. Very similar. Yeah. Yeah. That you were living in a land that you don't fully belong to, if you will. You know, Christians in the past, we see the same language of like, earth is not our home, you know, and heaven is where I belong. And I think that's, but that's theologically a very different problematic. Narrative. It is, Yes. Uh, <laughs> That's a wildly yeah. different narrative. Well, it's still trying to express a sense of, I don't quite belong where I am here. Now, I think it's theologically problematic to say I was created for some disembodied state in heaven. That doesn't reflect Genesis 1 and 2 at all. So I think we do have, I think, a distorted category for this kind of idea that we got really used to in the past. So just take kind of what people were trying to do with that, uh, <laughs> this earth is not my home, and say, this nation is not my home. Huh. Why do you think that this earth is not my home became far more comfortable with a kind of, I hesitate to use the word Christian nationalism, (laughs) but why is it that when I start saying heaven's my home, by which I mean disembodied existence and I've lost the resurrection and I just want to die and go be a spirit somewhere, why does that become more comfortable with some sort of Christian American identity? I don't know. I don't know. I wonder if because people could hold that kind of view alongside being patriotic for some reason, but if it's not your home, then you should... Yeah. I don't have a good answer. <laughs> I don't, it's just as we're talking, it's like, that's really fascinating. Maybe if you think the whole world is going to burn, yeah, there's a certain way in which you say, well, none of this stuff really matters. You know, yeah, but that's my ultimate home. And for now, I guess I'll just be really invested here, but it won't count. I don't know. I can't, I can't figure that out. <laughs> I do wonder, we've had that mindset reinforced through a lot of hymns and thinking and for a couple hundred years, yeah. at least I think the late 1800s, it might be when that theme, that kind of like... Earth is not my home. And you do have biblical verses that kind of say that. I think that's not what they're quite getting at. Maybe the history is kind of 
pretty pervasive with that kind of thinking. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. Okay, yeah. someone listening <laughs> to this podcast, you reach out to Preston and I, and you let us know the answer to our question because I think it's a kind of fascinating question. Yeah. Okay, let me shift. You know, because obviously you're working on this book from a more academic perspective. You're tracing, I think, the theme of exile throughout the biblical storyline and then applying that to our political identity. And so your book's going to be, as Keith would say, the private school book. <laughs> well, <laughs> you don't I, write at a private school level. I shouldn't yeah. say that. You know, but it'll be well-researched and I'm reading a lot of academic stuff. But the prose is going to be, I'm writing to, Great. people say my I guess genre is like thoughtful trade. So it's not like Christian living, but it's not academic it's somewhere in between like somebody who thoughtful trade is my favorite i always say the people i want to look for author wise are people who are translators you know yeah. in other words they have a knack for i can read the tier above where i'm writing and then i can translate it down to the yeah. to a lower tier and i mean those That's are kinda, yeah and i think it'll be fantastic i guess where i'm going with that aside from picking on you for a second <laughs> uh it's self-deprecating because i can feel better about the fact that my book's not gonna be as uh, nearly as well researched uh is this <laughs> i am trying to figure out just on the ground what does exilic identity really look like and to paint a picture i'm going to talk about a lot of people i really respect when i do this so i'm not critiquing these but we're beginning to see people from a really diverse array of theological traditions and denominational backgrounds begin to use this language Language. You've got Anglicans using it, and Baptists, and Anabaptists, and people from like Holiness Wesleyan traditions using it, and people from Reformed traditions, and Lutherans. Like you have people who historically cannot get along with each other, and you've got people inside of those movements who are all using the language of exile. What I find interesting is once you go one layer deeper and ask, like, what's that actually look like to live as an exile? It begins to play itself out in some pretty different ways. So, in Ironically, it always ends up reflecting the tradition that it comes out of. So two examples. Interesting. Let's talk about kind of the Wesleyan holiness tradition. So people who I would see in this camp who I really love and respect, so this is not dogging on them. I think about people maybe more like John Mark Comer or John Tyson or I don't even know if they would say they came out of that camp or Mark Sayers, who I love. I mean, these are all people who I read every book that comes out by them and they're fantastic. So this is not a critique. But what's interesting is like for them, like what's exile look like? It's kind of this Wesleyan holiness thing. It's like let's start doing some practices, you know, if there's a problem. Like, let's have a 24-hour prayer meeting, and that's going to maybe solve the problem. We need to kind of change our practices and our lives and grow in holiness and kind of live set apart <laughs> from the world, in a sense, so that, you know, by being set apart, we'll be a light that draws people to the nations. And by the way, I want to say all oh, that's really good. But then I look in my camp, because I come from Reformed background, and when we start talking about exile, we end up sounding a lot like other Reformed people. Because in our camp, you've got this transformationalist tradition, like Kuiper, and people who said, hey, what a Christian should do is get involved in the governmental process, and you don't expect it to be perfect, but you try to slowly, over time, transform culture, bring it more and more in line with God's vision of what the kingdom should be. And so that's what we end up sounding like when we talk about exile. Like, hey, like, don't get your hopes up. It's never going to be perfect, but get involved and take office and make changes. And those are two actually very different approaches to how you live. And I could keep going. Like I could pull this out from Baptist tradition, like how these are all getting mapped out. So can you square that circle for me? Like what does it actually mean on the ground to be yeah. in exile? I don't know if I can. Honestly, this is where I'm going to lean on you because I feel more confident in shaping the political identity, just kind of the framework, the way of thinking, the lenses we should have on. But what do you mean by political identity? Get into yeah. that for a second because political identity could okay. be the... John Mark Homer okay, thing okay, of like yeah. my identity as an outpost of heaven that's separated and we're a little bit, you know, distant from mm -hmm. the culture around us. Or it could mean what I'm saying, like my political identity because I'm going to run for office. <laughs> I'm going to make some positive okay, changes. Yes. You know what I mean? I would probably lean more towards the John Mark Comer viewpoint. And here's where I'm not trying to work out because I'm not against political involvement necessarily. I'm suspicious of it. So in Revelation 12 and 13, you have a very clear unveiling of what's going on behind the scenes. Satan is empowering governing authorities. There's no debate about that. Like, that is the claim. <laughs> and you can say, well, that's the Roman Empire, not other. But even there, like, the Roman Empire is described through the lens of kind of all the empires on earth. Even that unveiling is kind of designed to not be pinpointed on one specific empire, even though it's kind of Rome is the empire of the day, but it's kind of like, this is... What's going on behind the scenes? Whatever involvement Christians might have, it has to come from the perspective of this is a demonically empowered false kingdom. Doesn't mean everything that does is bad. Again, I've, Rome did some good things. America does good things. There's laws that could be changed, but just know that it is always still 
Babylon. Don't think that they are really establishing the kingdom of God on earth. And when I say political identity, I guess what I specifically mean is our identity must be completely detached from the various sides of the political aisle today. So I would call that partisan identity. Okay. Yeah. So by political, you mean, hey, we're not partisan. Like part of our political identity is we're not getting hijacked by these parties, these power players. Yes. I would say at the very minimum, it's that. I haven't worked out all these little details. I'm kind of thinking (laughs) out loud here. Because when I get to modern day politics, I don't want to get over my skis and start speaking beyond what I know. And that gets really, really, really messy. But I guess, yeah, just on a practical level, when I see Christians kind of agreeing with that, like, oh, my allegiance is to Jesus, da, da, da. But are you being discipled by certain sides of the aisle? You know, I lean one direction, you know, I kind of like, I value this side a little more and I think they do better work, but I'm still, my identity is in Christ, you know, I'm like, well, how does your heart get moved when you hear the other side of the aisle talk or your side of the aisle talk? Like, are you shaped (laughs) by your quasi or subtle allegiance to one side of the aisle or the other? Like, I want Christians to be the most relaxed people on election day. I want them to be able to not even check the news for a couple of weeks after the election. So I actually did this in 2020. I didn't know who our president was for like two weeks after the election. <laughs> How did you devote? I don't even. I just didn't go online. I didn't. I, you didn't I, talk to anyone. You just. Well, I was on sabbatical in an island in the middle of South Pacific. So I, I was. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was surfing and, you know, so even I'm kind of caught up. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying these are not important. Well, am I? <laughs> okay, so let me lean in on yeah. this, you know. So, and this is an example Keith and I use frequently as we're kind of dealing with this in our little mind castles, is we go back to the civil rights movement. And we yes. think about what Martin Perfect, Luther yeah. King said. He was critiqued by people for being too political, too politically engaged. And moderates, he said, hey, let's just take this slow. And he said, look, you can have whatever perspective you want, but we need these laws in place for the simple fact that if we don't have them in place, people like me are going to get lynched. Yes. Right? And so I don't have the liberty of going into my little enclave and, you know, living my little holiness tradition and, you know, doing my 24-hour prayer meeting and hoping that somehow God is going to do something that changes our situation. No, we've got to get out and march and in some cases die for this cause. We've interviewed every one of those people, so I think they all know I love what they're doing, and so I'm, I'm being facetious. Okay, okay, I'm going okay. over the top. So <laughs> let's just be clear. that is, I've never heard any of those people say anything like what I just said. I'm just I'm going over the top to make yes. a point. The civil rights movement is a classic example. We have a few things at work. Number one, it was explicitly nonpartisan. This was not, if we can vote this person in, then that's going to solve our problems. Or this, you know, It was like, this is a nonpartisan issue. King was very explicit about not making this a partisan thing. Number two... It was shaped by Christian values. We are not going to use power to overthrow power. We are going to use sacrifice and nonviolence and you know non-resistance to resist, if you will, the powers to be. So they didn't ditch the shape of their Christian identity in order to try to muscle through you know justice. And number three, there were clear unjust laws that were being addressed. Sometimes today I see people, we need to fight against that. We need to fight against this, that, you know, we have white cops, you know, just walking around gunning down black people for no reason. And we need to defund the police, or whatever. We need to do this. And some of these things are way more, I think, complex and messy than the profound clarity of the unjust laws that King was addressing. Am I right there? Please correct me if I'm wrong on that. All I have to say, yes, I think Christians, to get involved in addressing injustice in society, I think there is a place for that. I think the way we go about it needs to be careful, needs to be Christian, and needs to be done without thinking you are inaugurating the kingdom of God on earth. You are, in a sense, that this is in the category of I'm seeking the good of the city, Jeremiah 29. Let me just stop there because my thinking's not as refined on this as it, as it needs to be. So, <laughs> before we get to topics that you know probably aren't entirely inside of the book, but I'm doing it intentionally because I do yeah. want to think about this. Sure. One half of what you're saying, I really want to affirm. You know, I always tell people if you have a chance, Martin Luther King had it was kind of like an oath that he made every protester take with him who was protesting with him, and I think it was in Birmingham. And I don't know how it changed over time, but it's these ten little principles of what they're committed to, and it is a 
beautiful mm. expression of Christian nonviolence. Okay. He talks about the way that they speak to people. He talks about their attitude. He talks about praying for people. He talks about reading your Bible and meditating. It is this beautiful expression of how to fight for justice in the way of Jesus. In our membership class, actually, we go through it. <laughs> so on that end, I'm like, you're right. He battled injustice in a way that kind of worked around the existing political system. Like, he wasn't coming from within because he couldn't. As a black man, there was just no hope. He wasn't going from the inside. He had to go around the outside. And I think because a lot of Christians today, white or black, but especially white Christians today, have a sense that they should be close to the center of power and that they can't have access to power, they don't do the workaround option of the kind of nonviolent way of Jesus. They kind of go straight to the center and say, well, let's just take the power and pull the levers. And so on that level, I really want to agree with you. I'm not convinced that this was clear to people in the 1950s, okay. personally. That what was clear? That the civil rights was shaped by Christian values or that it should have been well, done Well, uh, yeah, I mean, like, or, what I'm thinking yeah. about is, you know, Jerry Falwell, who was at the time very, very critical of Martin Luther King, and he said he was too political, he accused him of communism, and if you drove around where many of these protests took place, there'd be billboards that would say that these are billboards by Christians, you know, communist schools, and that's what's happening. These are all, you know, it's the Red Scare stuff. These are all Reds, and we've got to watch out. You think about the pastors and the Christians who were in the Ku Klux Klan who clearly didn't think, you know, they have, yeah. a, they have a ham theology. And in retrospect, obviously, we can look at this and say, this is really clear, but I think if we were talking to, you know, a moderate Christian, he'd say, well, but, you know, desegregation, think about the cost that's going to be associated with that. Think about how are you going to bring schools together? There's some real obstacles that we're going to have to face to make this thing work. And so I'm not, so I'm not the, defending the, them. I'm just saying, no, I don't no, know no. if it was clear. That is actually a great illustration. Like Jerry Falwell and his concerns, they're political concerns. He's taken his framework of communism, capitalism, and these kind of political categories, and that's why he's concerned. He's not concerned like— for Christian reasons, really. Oh, I agree with that. Yeah. There's nothing Christian about yeah. his concern. The desegregation, it's not that this movement is kind of violating Christian principles. It's, I don't agree with that kind of political, social, maybe outcome or motivation here or something like that. But I think some of those people, I mean, this was I, wait, critique wait. of moderates, right? Is you guys say, let's take it slow. We'll get there. Yeah, You're yeah, right, yeah. you know, and I don't want to map the present reality on Sure. It. But you can see those people in churches saying, hey, we're going to pray for the cause. We're going to have in our communities a different way of doing things that shows a better way, but we're not going to march with you. Yeah, I get it. So, I mean, you're saying like even today, if people adopt this kind of exile in Babylon, there's going to be really disagreement on what that looks like. We march or don't march. Never march, sometimes march. March for what? And I guess I'm happy to have those conversations. And that's where I want us to come at this conversation from this perspective, this biblical perspective that we are dealing with the clash between empires here. Our identity is in the kingdom of God. And as our submissive, nonviolent kingdom people, if part of seeking the good of the city is to point out to Babylon, this is unjust, and we have a means to kind of address that, then yeah, I think we can absolutely take that as the church, as Christians, as people who are exiles in Babylon, not as fellow Babylonians. It's the principle of do you change Babylon with the levers of Babylon or do you change Babylon right. in these kind of paradoxical, you go through the back door instead of the front door. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. It's a way of putting it. Like, I wonder if that's part of it. I mean, that is what makes King's movement stand apart. Yeah. Again, it wasn't from the inside out. It was from the outside right. in. The church in the first century was a political institution in the sense that it had an ethic of all these political ideas. It had a sexual ethic. It had an economic ethic. It had an ethic on immigration and all these things. And I want the modern day church to kind of regain that kind of vision so that you know, I often use the example of churches that five seconds ago started caring about the race conversation, meaning they denounce CRT as the extent of their involvement in the race conversation. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, we have a rich, rich biblical theology of a multi-ethnic kingdom. So rather than being focused about people teaching CRT in school or not teaching CRT, whatever side you're on, let's turn inward and say, how is our polis, our ecclesia, our church embodying this profound beauty of being a multi-ethnic kingdom? How is ethnic reconciliation happening at your church? Let's at least, before we kind of go and try to fix the world and make the world look more like the kingdom of God, let's make sure the kingdom of God looks like the kingdom of God, you know? Economics, we have more verses on how to use and misuse wealth than probably any other theme in scripture. I think over 2,000 verses address 
the use and misuse of wealth, helping the poor. Like internally, how are we as a church embodying these things? For instance, all the violence in South Chicago, you know, gun violence and you have racial tensions and it can become really politicized. You know, people on the right will say, yeah, mass shootings aren't really the issue because we have a mass shooting every other day in South Chicago and gun laws aren't stopping that because these are all with handguns, I think is how people might say. And then the other side, they'll say, well, no, they can just go across the border in Indiana and go buy a gun. So, no, we do need to reform gun laws on a federal level, you know, so then that would reduce the violence. And then people bring in the race conversation or poverty. And so with all that, those are all kind of this like Babylon categories, which aren't unimportant. Meanwhile, there are churches in South Chicago doing amazing amazing work. You know, people say, well, it's the lack of the father in the household. And so there's churches addressing that, helping that, discipling kids who maybe don't have a father or don't have any parents and caring for victims of gun violence and addressing all their church level stuff going on. So that's an example of, yes, all these political categories are important, but if we just view it just through that lens, rather than first saying, how can we as a church be a light in the city as the church? That's where I want to put our focus. I hate to keep harping on the MLK example, but I think there is something to learn in the fact that, well, obviously he eventually helped create federal changes that preserved Black Americans' right to vote and to have equality. When you look at, especially his early protests, I mean, he's often going from city to city where these are very localized state-level problems that they are trying to address. And eventually, because of what they did, it not only has to resolve the state-level problem, it becomes a federal-level issue that has to be resolved. And I'm saying that because what you're describing is, look, you realistically probably, if you're listening to this, don't have any power at the federal level to affect much change. Where you do have power to affect change is very much so on the local level. And this isn't just an individual thing. This is something that we do together as the ecclesia, as the assembly, which is a political term. I mean, church, people talk about church, like that is a political term. I mean, they would have understood that as a political gathering. It's like the group protest. I don't know. And if we can do that on a local level, who knows how God could use those local level transformations to affect higher level things, but that's a little bit beyond our purview. So I want to fully embrace the holiness side of exiles need to build practices into their lives that help them to grow in their walk with Jesus and their likeness to Christ. But maybe my own transformationalist background has been too fixated on kind of high national level conversations. And it's like, hey, let's be a transformationalist in your city or your suburb, or your urban environment, your borough, wherever you're at, right? Let's be transformationalists locally, and let's integrate that with pietism. <laughs> I agree with that. Caitlin Sheese, I think you've had her on, and she made that distinction to me all back, and I thought that was really helpful, mm-hmm. that being an embodied Christian as part of an embodied ecclesia church should spill over and produce good in the city around you, and that might involve working through various political structures or addressing various kind of local injustices that are happening. I want to think through that more, but I do just on a very anecdotal practical level see that as more theologically accurate and probably just practically beneficial. Yeah, there's a pragmatism to it. This feels more manageable and possible. Whatever political involvement, change, whatever we want to have, I want to do so from the perspective that the governing authorities, you can go read Revelation 12 and 13, are empowered by Satan. We're not going to... <laughs> I love that. This is how we're going to end it. It's like, yeah, they're empowered by Satan. That doesn't mean everything they're doing is bad. doesn't mean we don't submit. doesn't mean whatever. But at the end of the day, the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God are in competition, and the kingdom of God will win in the end. So whatever good we want to produce in the Babylonian kingdom empowered by Satan... <laughs> I know it sounds, (laughs) I think it's so important because Revelation is the one book that peels back the theological curtain. It gives profound theological vision for all the other governmental stuff all throughout the scriptures. And that's not the only pastor. I mean, Jesus, when he was in the temptation in the desert, you know, Satan said, I'm going to give you all these kingdoms of the earth. And people are like, oh, he doesn't really have, well, no, he is. He's empowering them. (laughs) That's a real statement. You have in Daniel you know, the angel, was it Michael, you know, fighting the prince of Persia and the demonic being that's empowering Persia. And another one's going to come on the scene and empower Greece. And this idea that, you know, the kingdoms of this earth are ultimately empowered by satanic forces, that that is a very common, basic Jewish theme that was adopted by Christianity, according to the book of Revelation. So I think whatever, we just need to keep that mindset always in place so that we don't kind of lose our 
overarching theological perspective, I guess is how I'd put it. Yeah. And this is something we've been reflecting on because I think you can actually go right back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 to 11. And we see this narrative play out, right? You're in Eden. It's this place where clearly Adam and Eve are supposed to spread the garden and build this temple city that's going to engulf the whole of creation. And they rebel against God and they go a different way. And living outside of Eden is hellish and anxiety ridden and awful and brutal. And what do humans do? Well, Cain builds a city and his sons build the city and they create technology. It's like Bronze Age, Iron Age, you know, music and all of that. And the story keeps going. You get to Nimrod and he builds Babylon and all of these other cities. And you see the good and the evil there. It's like, well, there's like a goodness and beauty and technology and music and culture. And yet also it's clear that they're using slave labor in Babel. And it's clear that, you know, is like murdering children for insulting him. You see, you see the darkness built in right there. And so we can have this nuanced view where we say, look, Babylon is part of how we're dealing with the anxiety of living east of Eden. And we as Christians have to have antithesis in our relationship with Babylon, like what you said. This is powered by demons, but we also have this synthesis and say, but this is also the only place where we can live. <laughs> right. And navigating that tension between that antithesis and the synthesis, that is a really hard yeah. place to be, but that's a better place to be than emphasizing one exclusively or the other. And I wonder if that's where these two streams I'm describing, like yeah. my stream is too synthetic. Like we can be one with Babylon. Let's transform it. And the other stream I think might be too antithetical where it's like, we don't even need to worry about Babylon because we can do what we're doing in our church. Like, well, maybe we put those two together. And I'm okay saying keep the antithesis on top. Like, I think it probably is the foregrounded thing. Yeah, yeah. And also, just again, to go back, I'm going to reemphasize that a lot of these political values we want to see in the society around us, are they happening in the church? Because I think when we had the mindset of the church is our kind of religious gathering that's not just political at all, and then you have all these, you know, themes of immigration and economics and sexuality and all this stuff and race— It's like, no, those are all themes that the church as outposts of the kingdom of God on earth should be embodying how the reign of God is to manifest itself on earth. So I don't want to, as Christians, set aside that primary mission for the sake of trying to clean up Babylon. I want to say as outposts of the kingdom of God, when we are doing that right, when we have racial reconciliation happening in the church, when we have power dynamics torn down, when you have the first will be last and the servant will be the leader, when we have economic redistribution, when we have immigrants being welcomed, when we have a global concern, you know, too, is our improvement of America Babylon hurting other nations around us? You know, like this celebration, we're so wealthy, we're doing great. I'm like, yeah, is that a Christian value if other people, global people, are being hurt by American wealth. So I just want us to ask broader questions about what does it mean to be the global people of God, keeping that our focus. And when we are embodying the kingdom of God as we ought, that should spill over and be good in society. I think it's a fantastic way of summarizing something I really fundamentally do agree with. And what I feel like I've seen even in our own church context is we are at our best when we are embodying kingdom values. And like you said, it's spilling over into our community. Something we've always said as a church is we want to be the case that if we ever moved out of Columbia, everybody would notice and they would say, oh, shoot. We didn't know how much they were doing to help, to serve the homeless, to serve single moms, to serve refugees, to serve ex-cons. Like, I hope hope that's what they would say if we left. And I think that's kind of what you're saying is we need to embody that in our local community and that will spill out into wherever we live. I just talked to Munatsi Mignandi, who most people won't know who that is, but he's an executive director of an organization called Dash. Dash, as a Christian organization, meets the needs of people seeking asylum. I didn't notice though. I talked to him last week. He said, our system is really broken. Like to seek asylum, you need to come here and fill out whatever and apply and prove that you are an asylum seeker. Meanwhile, it takes two to three years while you're here as an illegal person or undocumented to exist just waiting to be a full citizen. So you're not supposed to work. You're not supposed to do anything. So he's like, what do they do for two or three years? And Munazi was in that situation years ago. So as a Christian organization, rather than trying to change the laws, they said, okay, we're going to create an organization where we are going to step in and meet those needs. So they provide housing, food, care, relationships to meet the needs of these asylum seekers during this one to three year no man's land. I think it's a perfect example of as the body of Christ doing what we expect Babylon to do, but Babylon is not doing well, to rather than change Babylon, because they could say, we're just going to try to change the laws and do this and do that on a government level. Again, I'm not saying that that would be necessarily wrong. I just find it to be way more Christian and kingdom oriented by stepping in and being 
the kingdom change you're expecting Babylon to do. That's a fantastic way of summarizing it. And I think it's also a great way to, to wrap up the podcast <laughs> because I think it's a beautiful story that gives us a vision. I think it's what you're doing by talking about us being exiles in Babylon. It's what we're trying to do. I want to give Christians a refreshed, renewed imagination so they can re-envision their place in their culture, in their moments, in a way that empowers that kind of kingdom-oriented behavior, action, and living. And I think that the old metaphors and models that we've often used are not just outdated, they were from the start outmoded. They weren't always helping us mm-hmm. to live yeah. kingdom values. So I'm really looking forward to your book when it comes out. Do you have a release date yet? Is it- It's supposed to be April 2024, uh-huh. which means I need to finish it by June 2023, which is coming, coming around up, coming up quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll see. Maybe Keith and I will somehow try to figure out a way to race you and beat you to it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just take a month off and write. <laughs> I'm excited about the book and looking forward to reading it. Would you mind praying for our audience? Sure, yeah. Uh, God, I just, you know, these are really difficult questions we're wrestling with. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you give us strength and wisdom to um, to find our ultimate identity in you and to obviously cling to our allegiance to you. And I pray that you'd give us wisdom through your spirit to work out the many implications that that can have in how we live in the here and now, Lord. Help us to be um, good citizens in the kingdoms of the earth, but ultimately, um wise and committed citizens of your kingdom that you are establishing on earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Preston, thanks so much for being on the show. Is there anywhere people can follow you, stay up to date with your work? Yeah. So I have a unique name. So if you just Google me, you'll find probably two or three different websites that I have on. So Two or three uh, different websites, but not two or three different Preston Sprinkles? Nah, there's, yeah, I think there's only one of me out there. So PrestonSprinkle.com is my personal website. Theologyintheraw.com is one of the ministries I run. And then if you have questions around sexuality, gender, the centerforfaith.com deals with sexuality and gender questions. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd encourage everybody to go check it out. You should subscribe to Preston's podcast, one of my favorite podcasts. I get a lot of my guest ideas sometimes. <laughs> We're like, I we do the to, same. <laughs> we got to have that person on. And check out Preston's books. We haven't even talked about the ones that you've written more recently, but they're some of the best that I've read on topics of sex, sexuality, and gender, which is obviously something we talk about in the podcast pretty frequently. And so I would encourage you to go Look at those books, pick them up, and follow what Preston's doing. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.